Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Vince Panazzo, SVP of Client Partnerships at Hunt Club. He's responsible for go-to-market strategy, including net new customer acquisition and growth of existing customers. He leads a team focused on sales, customer success, channel partnerships, and sales enablement. He's a serial go-to-market leader for startup and growth stage companies with three exits over the course of his career. Prior to Hunt Club, he helped build and grow several health tech companies, including roles as CRO over at Strata Decision Technology that was acquired and VP of Revenue over at SwipeSense Swipe that uh, SC Johnson built. We are excited to have you. Vince, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. It's great to see you. really appreciate you having me as well. This is, this is going to be fun. So where I'd like to get started is SwipeSense. I, I think what we can yeah. do is we can kind of bounce around as necessary. So I think you have an a, a incredible amount of experience and we can bounce. I know that you and I talk all the time, so we can go into wherever we need to. But... Give us a little background as far as like swipe sense. What did you do? Like when you first came in, like what, what did it all look like? And then we can kind of jump from there. Yeah. It's interesting. Swipe sense is a, is a fascinating story because I had gotten to know the CEO and founder of swipe sense years before I actually joined the company and post a, a prior company, I started to do a little bit of, of consulting work, not knowing exactly what my next gig was going to look like and ended up reconnecting with uh, the founder, co-founder of SwipeSense, Murd Isri. And Murd is just an awesome guy. And he and I just started to do a little bit of informal work together. So I started to spend an hour a week with him, which led to a day a week with him, which led to a few days a week with him, just jamming on their go-to-market and ended up joining their full-time. And they were at a really interesting inflection point because SwipeSense had built this incredible IoT business that was focused on healthcare safety. And in particular, centered around how do you get doctors and nurses to perform better hand hygiene? But they were struggling at the moment that I joined to get product market fit after about a half dozen years in, in business. And that happens a lot in, in healthcare, especially in healthcare tech when you're trying to transform a space. So the moment at which I joined, we were just trying to figure out what product market fit um, was going to look like. And we ended up testing a number of different things. And within the span of about six or seven months, we ended up getting product market fit, which completely changed the trajectory of, of the business. But it was interesting because we didn't have a sales team. When I joined, it was me, our CEO, and I'll, there were two salespeople. It wasn't really a, a large team. And so we had to figure out what we were going to do with this limited team that we had. That's interesting. So, I mean, obviously you, in a, in a different situation than a lot of people, you knew what you were walking into. So you knew that there wasn't product market fit. You knew that they were just trying constant, constantly different things. Yeah. So when you walk in, like, what's the first thing that you really look at as far as like, how do you test to, to figure out how you get product market fit? I mean, six, seven months, that's, if you actually look at the grand scheme of things is, is really no time at all compared to, to yeah. a lot of the companies that are out there. But wh what did you do to try to figure that out? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think they were really close to it. And what we did to figure it out is we just started spending a ton of time with customers. And we, in particular, we started to talk to executives at customers. Before that, we were talking to folks that I would say 
were awesome people, but they were more junior folks in functional areas of the buyer versus taking a step up, talking to the CEOs, talking to the COs, talking to the CFOs, and really asking them probing questions about where this would fit in the overall mix. When we started to ask those questions, it became very apparent that we were focusing on positioning ourselves too much as solving one niche tiny problem for the hospital, which was quote unquote hand hygiene, versus taking a step back and realizing, oh my gosh, there are a tremendous number of things that we should be solving and taking more of a platform approach. So the simple answer is just having lots of customer conversations and hearing it from them versus us trying to come up with what the strategy was in a lab. That's interesting. So you have, you guys have these customers mm -hmm. and I mean, is it just like a simple email out to the executive to be like, Hey, we're trying to do some customer interviews and trying to learn from you. Like, do you go on site? I mean, I know this is a little bit like mm -hmm. swipe sense hit, I guess for COVID it, it was very beneficial for that, that time. But when you think about like, how, how do you actually do that? I mean, it's one thing to say, yeah. Hey, go talk to your executives, but like, how do you get them to actually say, Oh yeah, we already pay you. I want to spend more time telling you how to build your product? Yeah, a, a couple of them things. Like one is existing customers really cared and they really felt passionate about what the company was doing. And so they wanted to invest that, that time and energy, but it was a relatively small customer base. So we could only get so many data points with that. Right. The other bucket were organizations that were warm, trusted introductions. It wasn't us cold calling. It wasn't us emailing out of the blue. It was asking folks in our network, both customers, people that we had known over the years, and, and just contacts that really believed in us to introduce us to the people we wanted to talk to. And in that business, and I think in many businesses, that's what works, right? Is getting folks that actually can make that, that warm intro. And so that's what we ended up doing. And What's interesting in healthcare too, is that you have so many people that are vested in transforming and changing. And so they're willing to dedicate the time um, to actually give us what we needed to, to get it right. And then the other, the third bucket was just lots of informal conversations. Yeah. Just folks that I had, I, you know, I spent before that 15 years in health tech. So just calling folks I had in my network and just probing them with just like, hey, can I, as a friend, ask you some questions? Right. And that was it. Yeah, and literally just talk to anybody and everyone that you know. Yeah. And just try to piece together what the story is. Right. But all too often, don't you think that people are trying to figure this out in a back room in a lab and, and without yeah. talking to customers, trying to figure out what the perfect product market fit is? Yeah. And and usually doesn't come to fruition until you talk and you have those first set of customers. Yeah, no, I, all the, all the clients that, that call me, usually one of the first questions that I ask is how many of your customers have you talked to? What are the words that they use to describe their problem? Like understanding the story. So many of them will say, oh, well, we sent out this survey or, you know, we, we did this analysis, we did this research, but they're never actually speaking to them. Yeah. So if you, if you. If you're taking this one step further, I mean, one of the things that is a is a little bit of a challenge in, as far as balancing is hitting numbers, right? You, you're leading the sales team, you're leading revenue, and everything that you're just said is like learning and talking to people. You're not really selling anything, right? You're just trying to figure it all out so that you can eventually sell something. Yeah. What What does that look like internally from your, your metrics aren't drastically changing each and every single month from a revenue standpoint? You know the the board can be like where the hell's the revenue like how do you how do you manage that 
Yeah, I think it, it, you have to take a step back before you can can manage that and have those conversations. You have to develop trust. You have to develop trust with your investors. You have to develop, develop trust with your board. You have to develop trust with your colleagues that are surrounding you too. And by building trust at the outset, you can have the conversation around that we're not going to likely hit the number that we expected to this quarter, but we are going to put ourselves in a position to have a much better likelihood of hitting that number six to nine months from now. Without having that foundational trust, you can't have those conversations. And so yeah. that's, that's, I mean, it's a basic answer, but that's really it. And it's, it's hard because you want it to move faster. You always want it to move faster. You want revenue to grow faster while you're also trying to build the right foundation. And sometimes those two things just don't go, go hand in glove. Well, it's one of those things where you kind of have to slow down to go faster. And, yeah. you know, you, you could just kind of bang your head against the wall for a while to try to hopefully sell some things here and there, one-offs and get mad at each other. Or you can yeah. say, hey, like, let's figure this out. And then you're just going to, let's say, smooth sailing. But it's going to be a lot easier in order to be able to repeat or replicate ultimately what you're doing because yeah. you, you've actually taken some time to talk to people. Yeah, and we had a really interesting kind of d debate at, at SwipeSense, too, which was we had a limited pool of funds. And we could have invested those funds that in going to hire one or two sellers, or we could have gone and hired one, maybe two marketers. And what we ended up realizing was, you know, we actually have a great story to tell here. And how are we going to get the most leveraged outcome possible? It's not going to be actually by us just adding one or two more sellers. It's going to be by us actually hiring a world-class marketing person to be able to go help us tell that story, get that in front of the right, right people and start to build that flywheel. And then we can add sellers later uh, to, to drive more revenue. It's all about the story. Quit the pitch. Yeah, yeah. It's all about the story. So, right, right. Story. so, so you it, you take six to seven months to figure out product market fit. How do you figure out you got it? What are the signals? We we I'll never forget. It was it was it was May, and gosh, don't remember the exact year, but it was maybe 2017. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, 2018 actually. 18. And so we ended up closing the largest contract in in the company's history. And we knew for every single thing that we offered. And we knew at, at that moment that we had that. that was right. it. It, was, it was sponsored by executives across the board. It was a significant uh, purchase. It was a multi-year agreement. And it was everything that we could offer. In, in that when we knew that we got that, it was the what we needed to, to show us that we were on the right pathway. And then after that, it just started to fall into place. So then from there, you, you sign this big deal and then what? So obviously it's you and Murd who, who are doing this. You start to figure things out. That's all of a sudden like, bam, we got the signal. Like, let's go raise more money. Let's go build out the team. Let's go do all these amazing things. What does that mean for you and kind of the, the overall revenue team? Like what are, what are the next steps that you take to not so much transition out of founder, founder led sales, but really kind of take the reins and just yank them from him and say, Hey, all right, we figured this out. Now I'm going to do my thing so that you can go do a lot of your other things. Yeah, it's a good point. And, and I worked with a founder who is very sales focused and an incredible seller. And so, and that's happened a number of times over the, over the course of my career. And so that is a, cha a challenging thing to happen. But in this instance, going back to trust, we had built a, such a trust relationship that 
it was an opportunity for him to go focus on other parts of the business. Not that he was taking his eye off sales, but he knew that he had somebody who could then accelerate this. And we talked very openly about the fact that we were not going to go be able to be in a position to go build out a, a large team. So it was going to be up to, to me and really one other person to go and put us in a position where we could ultimately have one or two options. One option is to go raise money. The second option was to go sell the business. We ultimately decided to, to sell the business because yeah. we had an amazing partner um, that was at the table and was the right moment for, for the business. But I think it went all back to the foundational trust that we had built because we had been very open with one another. And that that and we did something that I think a lot of people don't have the luxury of doing is we had this kind of trial period, right? where we spent an hour a week together, we spent a day a week together, we spent a few days a week together, and we really developed that that foundational understanding of one another. And that was really it. That's interesting. No, that makes a lot of sense. So when all of a sudden you start to, for lack of a better phrase, take take the reins and, yeah. and he's able to go do some other things, one of the big things that I know that you're a, a, a big proponent of is focusing on the platform versus focusing on the product itself. Like, yeah. can you explain that a little bit? And like, yes. how did you actually do that? Yeah, I actually, you know, it's funny. I learned that back in the early days of my career uh, when I was at Stratasys Technology. You mentioned I was a CRO there. And we at Strata, we, believe it or not, we ended up developing one of the first SaaS technologies in healthcare finance in the early 2000s before the concept of SaaS was really a thing the cloud didn't didn't exist and at that moment we actually had several individual products that were all sold individually and what we started to realize at that moment was that we'd have organizations that would buy this one little piece but they wouldn't buy all the other things that we did because they're separate and what we ended up realizing was oh my god we have this huge opportunity if we actually bundle this all rather than have these one little niche products, one that solves financial forecasting, one that solves capital planning, one that solves operating, but let's put those all in a single platform and let's go capture more share. And let's position ourselves as much a more of a strategic tool that executives want to buy versus one, we solve this one little one-off problem. So I go back to that story because that then really dictated the rest of what's happened the rest of my career. Each individual go-to-market leadership role I go into, that's the lens I tend to look at things for because it's much harder if I'm a, 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 a C-suite leader to make a buying decision, if I'm just buying this one little thing, it's actually easier if I can solve many problems all at once for me. So we took that same logic and applied it at SwipeSense and that's ultimately became one of the, the, and it's funny, when we started having the conversations with customers I mentioned, that was the common theme that kept pairing up. Hey, it's just solving this one problem. We needed to do more. Solving this one problem, we needed to do more. And so by going to this platform approach, it created stickiness, it created longer-term contracts, it created uh, larger ACVs, larger TCVs, and wow. just stickiness in general. So Talk about actually listening from the things that you learn from your customers that just go, huh. I have the answer. I literally have the answer right in front of my face. And all I got to do is combine them all together. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's really so, interesting. Yeah. So when you yeah. think about selling this thing, though, mm -hmm. so you put it together, it's just you and one other person. How big did the team ultimately get from a revenue perspective? 
You know, it, we never disclosed it publicly, and and I'm not going to. All right, this, well, let's not talk about it. I'm not, not going to put you on the line. All right, so you you did mention that you have at least one salesperson, which means there's somebody yeah. other than you who is somebody selling. Other than me. He was awesome too. <laughs> how how do you? You are a senior person. Obviously, the founder knows what he's doing inside and out. This person, like, how do you transfer and train onboard? How do you get this person to be able to be self-sustaining, independent in order to be able to sell some stuff as well? It's a good question. I think it's the same and no different in that instance than, than any others yeah. is give them a framework and give them autonomy, right? So we, we talked about what the overall framework was to be successful. That was we needed to align with the organization's strategic objectives we needed to be a critical system. We needed to drive ROI. We needed to have the right stakeholders involved. And we needed to know how to navigate the actual sales process itself. And so I think just having that framework, spending time with one another, staying close to one another, number one. Number two is working on deals together. Just getting in the weeds on specific deals because you can talk about, as you know, like deals all day, all day long until you actually experience it firsthand. So we ended up just co-working a number of different opportunities with customers. And I would learn from him, he learned from me, and that created the formula that yeah. we then went and deployed time and time again, and hopefully is still being deployed now after, after I'm no longer there. Well, it makes a lot of sense because it's, you know, co-selling is the best way to be able to see, see your yeah. own blind spots. Right. I mean, yeah. obviously you have your own blind spots and he was able to see some things and also able to see a lot of the things that you did well, but then you're able to like hands-on coach. It's not just, I see everything is, you know, gong and chorus and everything has to be a recorded call. And yeah. it's like, there's just so much, if I don't get to the call for five days, like it's just not top of mind. I don't remember the details in the same way. If I'm just like, I loved walking in to a call, you do your thing, you walk out, you game plan, like right there. Like you do the recap right there and it's live. That's right. That's it's a exactly huge, right. huge difference. You, you, yeah, you give each other candid feedback too, right? None of this, oh, you did a great job. Congratulations. Yeah. Like, hey, you know what? Yeah. There are three things that you did not do well in that conversation. And that, by the way, that's usually directed towards me. <laughs> uh, and, Vice versa, right? So that we could get it right next to me. I think what ends up happening is you have a lot of folks that co-sell and there's too much celebration of like, that was that was the perfect win, yeah. uh, the perfect conversation versus like, you know what? Like we could improve our, improved our value proposition here. We didn't focus on this person enough in the room and they're a key stakeholder. And third, we didn't have a great action at the end of that conversation that was gonna get us to the next step, right? True, true deal coaching right there. One yeah. of, it's, it's one of the attributes that I look for I wouldn't say number one, but I would say probably what num number one and number two from an attribute in a sales rep is self-coachability. I, I think it's so important. Obviously, can I, can I coach them or, or can whoever it is coach them? But I, I think in general, it's if you can self-coach yourself and you can analyze what you're doing, it's all the more power to you. I mean, you're going to be open to receiving feedback. You're going to be able to make changes. You're going to be adaptable. Yeah. What what are some of the things that you look for when you're hiring? Because you've hired a lot of sales reps and a lot of different models and that type of thing. But like, are there a couple of things that you're like, I got to have these in a person no matter who who or what role I'm hiring? Yeah. I mean, the list at this point is probably like 12 to 15. 
but I'll just cover, cover a few. Yeah. Um, I think, think number one, because I've always worked in growth stage companies, startups and growth stage companies is number one, always rise to the top of the list is comfort with ambiguity. I think that there's a lot of sellers that, that want to work in a quote unquote startup and a quote unquote growth stage company, but don't know what that really entails. It's really hard and it's highly ambiguous. There's no playbook. And yeah. so that ability to uh, work in a world of ambiguity where you're you're constantly changing your pitch, you're constantly trying to figure out who your buyer is, you're changing your product offering a lot of the time too. So that's that's number one. Number two is no or low ego. It goes back to the point which you mentioned, which is self coachability and coachability in general. And and unfortunately, when there's a significant ego at the table, it's really hard to have uh, self coachability and direct coachability in, in those situations. And Every time where I thought I could get past ego when I've hired somebody, I've never been able to because of because of that. Never works. Um, right? Never, really never does. You, um, you can't I, coach the asshole out. That's right. You, you can't. And the, and the third thing is like people that actually care about their customers post-sale. Hmm. It happens way too often, unfortunately, is people just want to get that deal over the finish line, spike the ball, and then they're ready to move on to the next one. And they don't actually care about the people that have to go and actually deliver on it internally or the customers that actually made the purchase after that. And one of the things that's always been really just important to me is testing and talking to candidates. I'm like, do you actually care about the customer after the deal is done? And let's talk about three to five examples of where you stayed engaged with your customer and they've come back to you time again, time again because of, of that. Yeah. So those those three are core, and then there's a list of colors that I so can So let's let's talk about that last one because that one's kind of yeah. interesting. How do you how do you test for that? Like how, when you're doing your recruiting and you're going through your hiring and that type of or your excuse me interviewing, how do you actually test for that? Because uh, I I could see a whole wide range of BS BS answers and things that people say. Yeah, yeah. I, there's a couple things that I think are tried and true. One is Tell me about a customer that you work with at your current company that you worked at at a prior company. Right? What happens if they say so, that that's never existed before? If it's their that, that should only happen if it's their first job, <laughs> right? Very but, true. Point. There should be re repeat customers if they develop the, the right kind of relationship. That's that's one yeah. um, that that tends to that can work really well. And then secondly is. We talked about uh, before we got started about storytelling, right? It's like I want to hear that story about where you went above and beyond for for a customer. We've got an example here of a colleague at at Hunt Club who went to a candidate's house in like the the snow and and blowing wind to go and get a signed offer letter to to make sure that they get it to to our our customer and get it over the finish line. Like I want people to tell that kind of story because stories are, really bring it to, to life more than just the kind of BS that you know that that can often come up in an interview. No, so. it's interesting. I, I I obviously help with a lot of hiring, a lot of a lot of onboarding and things. And it's it's interesting. I talk so much about when I talk about selling, I, I often use the the word story. So a story and I interchange it with pitch. But whenever I say a sales pitch, I really mean your sales story. Yeah. And it's interesting for companies, people tend to get it right away. Oh yeah, I gotta tell my sales story. I gotta tell the, you know, the customer story or the founder's vision story, something like that. But it's interesting when you go into interviewing, it's literally just selling, 
right? The company's trying to sell you on taking the job. You're trying to sell the company on why they should hire you. Like the whole thing is just a sales transaction. Yeah. And it works no different than like an enterprise sell where, you know, you're married afterwards too, so you can't kill each other. But when you think about it, like it's the story. I don't even necessarily care so much of like what it is, but make it appealing. Like yeah. make the story engaging. I can make a story with tone and inflection and speed. And I, 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 I like to swear not because I just swear, it's because I can emphasize in a specific place to just stop somebody in their tracks and go, holy shit, he just said fuck in the middle of a, of a story. Like, I, I, I missed something, right? And I got to start paying attention. And you do all of that purpose and intentionally, and, and, and it really makes a big difference, whether it's a job interview, a sale, like whatever it is. Maybe you shouldn't, I don't want to give the advice, swear in all of your sales pitches, but you know what I mean. Yeah, but it's sort of like punctuation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exclamation mark <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> but i think that the, the the here one one thing i would just add on to that is that it's not just telling the same story over and over again though right yeah you know what ends up happening is people get this pre-recorded story and then you start the material gets stale yeah. and you're not adapting the story to uh, a given person organization that you're you're talking to right so take the framework of the story and add some unique, unique tidbits into it. Yeah. Add some unique characters into it that are relevant to the people that you're you're talking to at that moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you you can tell, right? I mean, I can tell when someone's BSing me. You can tell when someone's BSing you. I mean, the hiring manager, the prospect, the customer you're trying to upset, like they can tell. Like you you, you got to be able to practice it. You got to be able to rehearse it. You got to be able to have it be authentic. If you're making it up, I can tell. You can tell. It's the way it is. All the time. Let's talk a little bit about Hunt Club. How long have you been at Hunt Club? Give us a little foundation of, of Hunt Club. We actually had Nick, founder and CEO, on the podcast before, so this will be a fun next step into this story. But what, t tell us about like your version of it when you started, kind of what you yeah. what you walked into. Well, Nick's my awesome boss, so I love well, that. Yeah, that don't he, say anything bad about him. Yeah, I, I won't. <laughs> you say anything bad about me? No. <laughs> no, only good things. <laughs> love that guy. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, so Nick and I got to know each you know, Going back to this, like, we're talking about trust, right? Nick yeah. and I got to know each other over the years. I met Nick back in, in the early days when Hunt Club was was just starting as a as a former customer. And it's one of those relationships that we just stayed in touch over the years. And we'd have a you know, annual check-in. And fast forward, we had you know, sold Swipe Sense to S.E. Johnson, as, as you mentioned. We had done the integration work and I was looking for what was next. And Nick and I started to catch up with one another. And we realized that, wait a second, why are we talking about you know, me working somewhere else? Why don't we find a way to work together? And so I ended up joining back in uh, late uh, 2021, so October of 21. So I've been here now, just about 20 months now at, okay. at the company. And uh, funny enough, ended up uh, joining in the individual contributor role. Um, I was going to do search here as one of our search professionals focused on doing search in, uh, for CRO, VP of sales roles, just given my, my background. Man. And as I was joining, Nick and I caught up and, and realized that there was an opportunity for me to lead the, the go-to-market part of the organization. And so I ended up joining in that capacity. And so it's been, been an awesome, awesome time here. And, and so what, is, what does the team look like when you join? Yeah, it was interesting. The team was a, about a half dozen, quote unquote, what they call GMs, so general managers, which are the equivalent of sales, account management, and a territory, and it kind of all, all bundled into one. 
And in addition to that, there was one person that was responsible for contracting and one person responsible for, for sales ops. And that was really the, the, the kind of the composition of the team. At that moment, the, the, it was in this wild time in back in early 20 or all through 21 or early 22, where it was wild just from a talent standpoint. And yeah. so at that, the company hadn't really organized yet around who owns a given market, who owns a given territory and, and so forth. So it was GMs that were just really, there was so much business at the, at that moment on great opportunities that, that folks were, were um, just you know, kind of working a number of different things. So what I ended up happening is after I joined, I kind of just took a step back and I interviewed a ton of people within the organization just because I didn't want to jump right in um, and have some preconceived notion of how you know, our go-to-market should look like. So ended up interviewing, gosh, 50 plus people in the company from, from executives to people on the search team across the board to get to know the business and ended up taking a step back and, and realizing there were a few additional functions that we need to, to add and also to, to do some evolution. And so from there, we've actually built out um, a, a go-to-market org that has several different different segments within it. Okay, so, so this is quite a bit of a, a different starting point from where, where you've done in the past. Not necessarily all of your career, but between Hunt Club and SwiteSense, you're kind of a different types of gigs, different types of scenarios. Hunt Club, it's pretty straightforward, recruiting. They, they just do it better than everybody else. And so they have a tech-enabled platform and you're able to go find whatever really, at this point, role that you need. Company needs that role, you match them together and, and, and they just do it a really good, nice job. But when you come in, it is, you already have product market fit, right? Yeah. You've already had plenty, millions of dollars in closed deals. I mean, Hunt Club had been around for a while and you already yep. knew that. Like yeah. you knew the space search is not like this brand new people have never heard of it before. So you're not like creating a category in any kind of way. You don't yeah. have to educate them. And so you walk in with a handful of sellers. You got a little bit of support behind you, but you know what it's going to take to get there. So like, what are some of the first things that you do to, to really even just make an impact? Like you do your audit, you talk to everybody and you're like, well, you guys are all doing really good. I guess I should go home now. Or like, what, what was the thing that you, you, you know, you actually like started to do? Yeah, it was a great point. There were so many great elements of the recipe that were already already there. Um, very different experience than than other places I've I've worked in in my career. Um, so there there are a few things that I, I really indexed towards. One is how do we build out the right kind of operational foundation. Because one of the things when you're in, in that kind of growth mode, as I'm sure you've seen, is you're not necessarily building all the right foundation or, uh, underneath it. So what I mean by foundation are things like, what do books of business look like? What do what kind of reports do we need to operate the business? What kind of reports need to go to the board? What sort of of cadence meeting cadence do we have as as between different teams? And so a big part of the focus right at the outset was what are those foundational elements that we need to have in place so that we can build on on top of? Second is we needed to build out RevOps, and that was something that I had learned in, in, throughout my career. Is I built RevOps too late, and always, it was, it was, <laughs> always too late. Right? Yeah, if was, you know, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Brad Rosen's going to like this if he listens. Yeah. That you know, you just got you got to build RevOps earlier, and so we ended up spending a bunch of time on getting a world class RevOps team in, in place, and we ended up build, hiring a new team, and they have just done tremendous work over the over the last year. So that was a, a, a second thing. A third thing was really centered around 
how do we take care of our customers post sale? Going back to this moment, who cares about, who really cares about taking care of the customer after the fact? We didn't have a customer success function. We had a sales function that they handed off to our delivery team, which did an amazing job. But as we continue to grow, we had more and more accounts. It gets really harder and harder to manage those books of business. So I helped to hire a leader for customer success, as well as uh, starting to build out a team that could really bridge the gap between those parts of the organization and really make sure our, our customers were taken care of after the fact. So it was taking these ingredients that we already had and now actually forming it into like a world-class recipe that was yeah. going to get us to you know, get a Michelin star. <laughs> I like that. So <laughs> you come on, you got your sellers, and then you're starting to build out essentially two other really, really important functions that, re that didn't really exist. I know you had sales ops, but RevOps takes on a whole nother piece yeah. of that. When you, when you think about it and what, like, from a, a point of view is you're leading, you're the sales leader. So you're, you're leading that team, but then you're also doing these other things. How on earth do you juggle all that? Like how, like, how do you know which goes first? How do you know, Hey, I need to have these meetings. I got, I got my sales yeah. people. I need to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, but then I got to go do all these other things. Like that seems like a recipe for the beginnings of, of kind of this, this burnout work a million hours. Yeah, it really can be. And earlier in my career, it was. And and sometimes I still fall back into those traps. I think like a lot of people do too, where you can, can burn yourself out. There's a few things though that I think um, have, as I've gotten further in my career, have helped me with that. I think one is, I know this is kind of like a lost art, but I force myself to write out memos around how I'm going to actually go and execute on a plan, like multi-page memo that forces me to get my thoughts on paper and prioritize effectively so that I can keep going back to that and redlining it till I ultimately get to what I think is the right plan. Then from there, I have others share it with others so they can redline as well. So Nick, as an example, other leaders in our team giving their input, because then I know that I've got the right plan that I can go execute on. And I'm not just trying to make it up on the fly. Cause I think we're gonna get really overwhelming is when you're just trying to make it up on the fly. So that, that's one thing. I think secondly is not trying to take on too much and letting fires burn. Like that's something that I didn't learn early enough in my career is sometimes they're just fires that have to burn that you're not going to get to all of them and that's okay. And so Focus on the things that really move the dial for the business and for your team and for your customers. And if there's a few things that happen that go awry along the way that aren't mission critical to the business, that's, that's okay. And I think third is like just having a great team that you can talk to through those moments as well. So that's like, you, you know, that you're all marching together and that there are going to be some challenging times and some there's going to be sometimes we're taking on too much and there's going to be other times where we're 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 leveled out so, that's a good point probably, I, I, yeah. I haven't heard the memo one before i know like amazon used to do something like this but i i have become i used to i used to never say that i was a writer and over the last probably year two years i've been i've been writing on linkedin and then I, i've been kind of journaling every day and just ultimately writing really just organizes your thoughts and yeah. so it's it just that it's the exercise. You, 
in your case, you're obviously sharing it, but you don't even have to share it. If, if you're going to present it or if you're going to do whatever it is, I think it's a healthy exercise. I used to call total BS. I was like, this is a total crock. And this is like, <laughs> this is just something that people tell you to do, but like doesn't actually do anything. But having tried it and really kind of committed to it, it's amazing what happens from it. It really is. It is. And like, I find myself doing this constantly. And this isn't like just a thing oh, I did once. I'm telling everybody to do it. It's like as early as today, yeah. like, I wrote like a four page memo about how do we grow in the enterprise space? I met with last week with a board member and an external advisor of business. And we spent a few hours thinking through enterprise, like what quote unquote enterprise, I mean, so many different things. Right. And I had all my like chicken scratch notes I took. I was able to synthesize that into like, okay, this is how we should be thinking about it. And these are the exact next steps we need to go do. Now, share that with Nick this morning, get his feedback on it, and and we'll have we'll be able to align around a plan. So it's, I wish people uh, did it more. I, I think well, I think to your point, I, I, that, that key word is align, right? Yeah. Like one of the biggest things that as you are growing, especially if you're in a high growth company alignment communication i mean i i hear so often it's like i have no idea what that guy or that girl or that department or that whatever it is doing and it's like well do you ever talk what do you share do you have a weekly meeting do you share some kind of a memo like yeah. what a what a great way for everybody to center around and actually slow down to to ultimately speed up but to say let me articulate what it is that i'm doing here it's yeah powerful it, it, it really is and 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 writing for a lot of people, they don't. You have to have focused time, and people yeah. aren't. I don't want to say it. This, this sounds mean, so I'm not going to say it. But but you got to be disciplined, right? Yeah. So like, carve out the time to actually do it. Yeah. Because if you if you don't do that, and you're like, you know, write write a paragraph here, and then you check your email, and then you write a paragraph here, and you check it, it just doesn't work. You have to like force yourself to really sit down and make it happen. So that that's one thing. Let's let's dive into that a little bit of around kind of like time management. I mean, you're in a you're in a high growth startup. You've been doing this a couple of times. You got a, you got multiple data points. You know that this is really easy to have the whole world feel like it's on your shoulders and multiple people in the company can feel the exact same way. You are at no loss of probably emails or things that you could do on your to-do list. How how do you organize? How do you how do you how do you control your time to the best of yeah. your ability? A few things. So one is when I joined the, the company, I wrote out to people, like go back to my memo, I wrote out how I work and, and, and gave it to people. I'm happy to share an example with you. Yeah. And actually, this is how I think about organizing my week. This is how, what kind of communication works for me. Like I'm not the best when it comes to Slack. I'm better if it come, when it comes to text email like and so but you have to be open with people about that and so i think if you can tell others how you work and try as much as possible to, to get people aligned around that 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 helps them to understand like how you're going to manage your your time i think secondly is i'm pretty this is going to sound so so basic but i'm pretty religious about time blocking and actually holding myself accountable for keeping time blocks not that they always happen but to force myself to actually have the time to think and and do work if i didn't have that if my day was just chaos every single day there's days right during the week 
on average, you'll have what, 12 to 14 meetings in a given day, right? Yeah. How would you ever have the time to do thoughtful work if we didn't carve out, out time? And you just let people schedule over that all the time. So I'm pretty religious about time blocking, particularly on Fridays, um, which I find that it's easier to block time on that yeah. day the, than during during the week. So that's a second thing. And then I think third is I'm like, here, this is, here, I'm just going to go to the page of my notebook here. <laughs> the way I organize, like you won't be able to see this, but I have four buckets on my, my, my list of to-dos. I've got important and urgent. I've got important, but not urgent, not important, but urgent and not important, not urgent. And so by putting into these four buckets, it forces me to determine where should I be laser focused with my time? What are things that I probably should be delegating, delegating to others because it would be a, an opportunity for them and probably not the best use of, of, of a given day. And the third or the fourth bucket, not important, not urgent, probably things we just want to scrap and not focus yeah. on at all. And so that's the, the third thing is meticulous organization. That's awesome. I, I'm going to start doing that. I think I, I would imagine, and then you, you, sh you throw out a, a key word there is the discipline, the discipline to do it day in and day out. Yeah. I started uh, beginning of uh, last week to start to do a time audit because for that exact same thing is I'm looking at this and saying, wait a minute, where is all my time going? And I'm trying to carve out time and I realize I, I did schedule over time that I had blocked off or I said that I wouldn't do this until next week. And I, you know, I, I am notorious for trying to check as many things off my to-do list as possible because then I look at what I would call my to-done list and I look at it and go, look at all the things that I got done. Like I'm <laughs> productive, right? And I look at it, I'm like, ah, crap, I didn't do the like two things that like really could move the needle. So it's that discipline. So I do self-reflection yeah. every single week on Fridays. I look at it for like 30 minutes and it's been really helpful for me. It's really smart. It's but that that's really interesting. So, well, let, now let's take this one step further because you have a plan, I have a plan. But one of the things that you typically hear with sellers is, I got all this admin stuff. I got to go to Salesforce or HubSpot or whatever it is. Like I'm in a million internal meetings, and the stats are out there. Like sellers are spending more time not selling than actually selling. Like, how how do you manage that? Like, how do you help help your sellers actually sell stuff and not? Talk about selling stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, so going back to your point about the, the portion of time that sellers spend on quote unquote non-selling activities. I went to a, a Gong leadership dinner the other night and they put a stat up and it and I, I was really surprised by, I guess I shouldn't have been, that 77% of seller time is focused on non-selling activities. Ouch. 77%. So HubSpot, Salesforce, are you taking notes properly and transitioning to other parts of your team? Are, are you at team meetings, like 77%. So you have 23% of your time, what's actually focused on selling. So there are probably three major things uh, that I, I focus on in, in, and I'm not saying I'm always successful with this with our, with our teams, but, but I think there are three things that, that really help with this. One is when your teammates are identifying roadblocks in sales process, listen actively and figure out what changes you need to go make. If you're hearing consistently that this particular task is taking too much time, there's a pattern and that needs to go be fixed. And that's why you have rev ops and you have operations teams that you can collaborate with to do that. Don't just let it keep, keep happening. Secondly, 
is remove the elements of process that aren't critical, right? If we're talking about like we have a process at Hunt Club where we need to transition all the key information we've learned in our sales process to our search team who's actually going to go deliver on, on the search itself. There could then have been a ton of extraneous information. We leaned that, and I'm not saying we've gotten it all the way down, but we leaned it down a lot to the things that really matter to our team. So we're not focused on capturing extraneous information. I think what happens is people implement CRM thinking they need all this data and there's yeah. hundreds of fields and what? There's five, this many, yeah. Yeah, five that are actually really, really critical. And I think the the third part of it of it is looking out for constant opportunities to 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 change and not just having the status quo always be there. I, that sounds really simple, but I think what ends up happening is inertia takes over, right? And a process that gets put in place or a system gets put in place, it's just the way it is. Yeah. Question everything. Yeah. And if it feels like it's taking too much time, question it. And if it's if it's not value added time, like rip it out and and create as much time as possible. Because I, I want to like work in an environment where we have two thirds of our time available for for go to market, spending time with our customers and selling versus the inverse of that. No. Do you do you do it in such a way where it's just like kind of a feel as as you hear it, or do you schedule time? Like I, I have a client that every single month schedules time to say, "Hey, let's review some things. Like like pick a process, pick a part of the the team, pick, like pick something that it's like, hey, let's dig into this. What was the latest thing? And people can send like tickets, and they send like a a, a group email to a specific place to say, "Hey, we can all collect this, and then we'll review it on a set date." Do you do anything in such a way to be like, hey, how do I how do I get ahead of this? Because to your point around time management, like if it's a feel thing, I could feel a little bit clunky around, hey, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump on this right now versus kind of scheduling it out. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you brought that up, and I and I love that idea of having a cadence. We have a, a weekly cadence leadership from our go to market team, the team I lead, and our revenue revenue operations team leadership, and every week. We're talking about the things that we need to align around. Oftentimes, those are things that are process we need to fix yeah. or streamline yeah. and having that. And then we are able to each month, we have a focus area. And so one of the folks in our RevOps teams, she manages like here are our focus areas on a week by week basis for this month and the things that we know we need to refine, fix, remove. And then next month, we have a set of themes. And the next month, and then we're continuously you know, breaking through this. Because you can't get it all done. There's just yeah. no way. Yeah. Um, you just have to keep like focusing on the things that go back to priorities, all of the, the prioritization of all, all of this. So that cadence is, I think is yeah, critical to it. And sense. then secondly is um, we have our, just our weekly team meetings and that's oftentimes the forum where people just can't, and we've created an environment where people just can't really bring stuff up that's not working well for them. So we can figure out how to fix it. Yep, that makes sense. That 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 handoff that you have started to focus on more and more and more is that is that have you figured it out from like is that just your CRM like you have your custom fields you have the fields that you fill out you required them and that fills over I I have a client that we created a Google form or like a type form so the salesperson just like fills out all this information they click submit and then the the CS team gets it and they yeah. have to write it's kind of I guess kind of like a memo but it, it pulls out the, you know, the chicken scratch that's inside of a CRM's notes, like how have you made that process a little bit, a little bit smoother? Yeah. So we do it in the CRM. Uh, HubSpot has this, we use HubSpot. It has this amazing thing that you may have heard called playbooks. You can, it's awesome, right? And so we, all the questions that our delivery team, our search team needs to know to prep for a search, 
we have all the key questions in a playbook and our GMs fill it all out there and it populates all the areas that we need to when within the, within the CRM. When a, a GM marks something as closed one, it actually creates a, our RevOps team has created something that's called, we call it the open report and it, it outlines all this information that then gets delivered over to our delivery team. And then the first thing that our GM, who's the seller does is they set up 30 minutes to have a pre kick, we call it pre kickoff, right? So it gives the search team the opportunity to actually read through everything they documented in the playbook and in the CRM and other fields in the CRM too. Then they can digest it before they have a meeting with the, the GM to really make sure they're transitioning all the information, asking those, the, answering those second level questions so they can walk into the customer meeting and the customer knows for sure that that handoff happened and then all the right information was transitioned. Because as I, I, I'm sure you've been a buyer before, right? And you, you get transferred from sales to the delivery team and it's like you're teaching the delivery team everything for the first time. It, it's the, it sets the customer experience up on the wrong foot. And so we, we never want that to happen. Oh yeah, I love when I have to start all over again. Yeah. I'm like, how come y'all didn't talk? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> what the hell have been, do been doing for the last six months? Yeah, but yeah. huge, huge advocate of, yeah. uh, of playbooks and, uh, yeah. and help. <laughs> That's probably why we get get along so well. Let's let's talk a little bit about team. Change gears a little bit here. From curious, kind of like some of the mistakes that you've made over the over the years. What are some of the missteps that you've made? Whether it's team or or maybe even just process, go to market motion. Like, what are the some of the things that you look at and you're like, I took a bet, it didn't work out this is what I learned or, Hey, if I could do it all over again, I probably wouldn't do that again. Yeah. How much time we have left? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think you should go get some beers first before we get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. I'll, I'll, I'll try and focus on a, on a, on a couple. I one by far is growing teams too fast with the wrong people. Feeling like that you have to grow the team to hit the number. And so you end up hiring people that maybe were not, not, not maybe that weren't the right fits. And one of our customers told me one time, and I love, love the way he articulated this is when you hire somebody, if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. Right. And so I think we've, I, I've made some decisions over the years where it wasn't a hell yes, but we felt like we needed the, the people so that we could go scale. And I would never, I, 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 I I always reflect on those moments because they're usually, I, I did the wrong thing. So it's, I think it's scaling too fast. Yeah. I, uh, I like to say, if it's a yes, it's a yes. It's a no, it's a no. And if it's, you have to talk yourself into it, it's an absolute no. <laughs> absolute no. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the other, the other thing is hiring people that have big name companies on their resume and haven't worked in a growth stage company. That's why I go back to earlier, one of the, my, my key learnings. It's got to, when I hire is like finding those people that are comfortable with ambiguity, that are athletes, that are, are not necessarily athletes in the true sense of the word, but can be nimble and and, and really adaptable to a, to a, a given, mm -hmm. given setting. So a lot of the, the mistakes I've learned from are, are hiring. I think the second mistake I've, I've made is not realizing earlier in my career that it was okay to make mistakes and, and experiment with go-to-market. Felt like that I, and maybe it was just kind of the nature of, of how my career evolved, but I felt like I had to be perfect with go-to-market. And so I think that limited me from actually running experiments that probably could have been successful. And I realized that actually big time when we, I went to SwipeSense because SwipeSense had a very experimental culture and 
we tested some things in our, our go-to-market that ended up working magically. And I'm like, wow, maybe I should have done some like other companies this way. And that this and now Hunt Club has a very similar experimental culture too. And so we sort of learned that that earlier on that it's okay to make mistakes. And everybody says it, but inherently in your head, like if, if based on whatever baggage you have as a human, and I've got plenty of it, you convince yourself that it's not okay. Um, how, how did you break through that? If you said I that think, you have this baggage, how did you like? I, maybe in, yeah. it's a little bit easier in Hut Club because you did it at Swipe Sense, but like, how did you break those those habits or that thinking? I think working with an, an environment that was accepting of it. I think that that mm. that helped me. And I didn't always. I, I worked at my whole career. I worked at like great companies, but not every company has experimental culture, and that's okay. I think it was actually being in a, a culture that was really really experimental yeah. nature that that did it. That 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 ultimately pushed me in that in that direction. And I think it was. I do a lot of self-reflection. I do a lot of reading and I figure out like, what's my baggage that's holding me back as well. And I think it's just like me evolving as a person as well. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. Well, let me, let me flip it around then. So you've had a lot of success in your career and you've, you've made some bets, right? I won't give you all the credit, but let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you took a bet on or you tried and you're like, you know what? I'm going to bring this to every company or I'm going to do this again. Or if I had the chance to do it again, I would do it again. Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's a there's a lot a lot of a lot of examples. I think it goes back earlier to one of the things we talked about earlier today, which was in our conversation, is this idea of positioning yourself as a platform business versus a niche product. Like that, I I just figured that out early in my career with a lot of guidance, of course. And I feel like that's something I've been able to bring to most companies I've worked with, and it's been helped us become a strategic partner to our, to our customers. Yeah. I think that I think too is developing really authentic relationships with people. I think that in a sales world, especially in the world that we're, we're living in now, things have become so transactional that people don't develop real authentic relationships. And I think I've just spent a lot of time developing authentic relationships with customers with teams because I really do care. And by doing that, it just, it, you know, you create this kind of interesting network effect because people just inherently start to trust you. Right. And so you go to your next company and people start to, to you know, refer you business. Right. And they, they're calling you and asking for advice. Right. And so by, I think that's one thing I've done right is investing in those relationships and building trust. And then I think the, the, the third thing is like just trying to have as much fun with this as possible, which sounds obvious, but it is a grind to build a company. And anybody who says it's not is is not being factual with you. It's it's really really hard to, to do that. And so I think by creating a culture that is um, high performance driven, is empathetic, but it's also like you're getting some energy about what you're building. I'm not saying the fun part of like playing ping pong and that kind of stuff. I mean the fun yeah. of like building and like celebrating the wins together and so forth. Yeah, that's you know it's one of the things that people ask me like why I do what I do and it's just. The people that you do it with and the building part, like I, I am definitely not the fine tuner. I'm not the the guy that's ever going to come into a big giant corporation and fine tune the machine. Yeah, I get so much joy out of the build and the fight and the challenge and doing kind of fighting the fight with with everybody. And if if that's what you're about, like then growth startups are all for you. And if you're just looking to be a number and collect your salary and try to not work as much as you can. Like there, there's, there's roles out there for you as well. You can make plenty of money. Um, yeah. Probably growth startups are just not, not the right area. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> that makes sense. 
Well, let's let's wrap this up. This has been, I, I'm sure that we could talk about everything sales related go to market for a couple more hours, but I, I want to leave the audience with a couple things that I always, always wrap up with. What is a, a favorite book or a favorite resource that you recommend for founders or go to market leaders to, to check out in order to either better their org, better themselves, whatever, whatever it is. Okay. Can I, so I read a lot. Can I give you one example of a business book and one example of uh, a psychology book? Of course. Uh, okay, well, so I'll start with the psychology book. So this is one, actually, somebody just introduced me to a friend of mine. I was in Austin a couple weeks ago and told me about, it. I just finished it up and it, it's actually just very timely, but it's called it, it, it didn't start with you. And so I, a lot of us carry like family history baggage into our jobs, right? That hold us back, whether that means we don't take risks or that means that we're you know, worried about making the wrong decision and, and so forth. This, this book is really insightful about thinking about why there are certain things that probably hold you back as a human that may have started many generations ago in your, in your family. And it's time to start to, to, to dismiss some of those because they are ultimately uh, preventing you from, from growing. So I thought that was, that was, that that was really interesting. Good. And then the, the the business one is probably one that somebody's probably said on on your podcast before, but I really do believe it's the quintessential read for people that work in in growth stage companies, which is the hard thing about hard things, yeah. right? Yeah, great one. Um, we just got it for our whole team because it's like it's one of those books you can read over and over again because exactly. it just really articulates what it's like working in this kind of like in a growth stage environment. Yeah, so it is one of one of my faves. Yeah. What any last remaining parting wisdom that, that the great Vince Panazzo can share with, with us? Yeah, I, you know what? I think the other, other thing that we didn't talk about a lot, and, and I can be probably indexed sometimes more, too much towards this, but I think is really important in, in building a great business is pairing high performance with, with empathy and You've got to, and that doesn't happen a lot in sales cultures, it's right? Oftentimes Very you're true. just like hard driving. It's go, all about go, like, go, go, go. I don't how care. many things did you have? How, what did that convert to? Like, yes, and those are important metrics. Don't get me wrong. Those are part of the performance side of things, but you also need to be able to step into other people's shoes and see things from their, their point of view. And so I guess my parting words was like pair high performance with empathy and you create a really interesting um, kind of of sales culture uh, that a lot of organizations don't have. Well, it's a place that everybody wants to be too, right? If you're just, yeah. if you're a drill sergeant, like nobody, that, that's not a, a fun environment. We're unfortunately, fortunately, unfortunately, however you want to look at it, we are not in the military here. This is not, this <laughs> is not to the same extent, sure process and, and order needs to be in place and there's directional focus, but it doesn't have to be at the same place. Yeah. How does the audience get more of you? LinkedIn, Twitter, website, blog, what's the best way? Yeah, LinkedIn for sure is by far where, where I post the most. I have a Twitter handle, but I, I barely use it. Uh, <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll link LinkedIn for you in, in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, well, LinkedIn. And I'm, I'm hopefully going to start writing some more again, not just internally, but externally as well. I love it. Vince, yeah. we're going to have to have you again so that we can dive in more and more and more. This is so much fun. Thank you so much for doing yeah. this, buddy. I appreciate yeah. it. Good to see you. Always good to catch up. Thanks, Alex. It's a blast. Really appreciate you. Talk to you soon. You too. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.